before we start the show, I just wanted to reach out and say that if you are loving listening to the truth prescription as much as we are loving making it, please subscribe to the podcast. Hit that subscribe button. Rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and iHeartRadio, to name a few. And come check us out at www.thetruthprescription.com to get more insights and info, because the truth will set you free if you let it. A life lost is a tragedy, and nobody should ever have to deal with that. No matter if you want to say they're a good guy, a bad guy, that's terrible because they have family, and the family's going to mess them. Gentlemen and ladies, brothers and sisters, people. Wherever you are and wherever you are, welcome to the Truth Prescription Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sekou Gavis, and each week I interview successful people from around the world and discuss how accepting the truth can propel your career and help you live a life of gusto and purpose. No mantras, no gimmicks, just the truth. So close your eyes and open your ears. Now let's get into this. Come on. Good people. Welcome to the True Prescription episode number 33. Today I have the distinct honor of uh, having my guest here, Joe Imperatrice, uh, founder and president of Blue Lives Matter. Hey, Joe. Hey, how are you? Good morning. I'm doing great. Thanks for coming. Uh, just to give you a little bit of background, just on um, Joe and why I wanted him to come on the show and sort of uh, all, all those facts. So Joe's been a police officer for 12 and a half years. Joe, where did you grow up? Grew up in Staten Island, New York. He's, he's a Staten Island resident. And um, speaking of Staten Island, uh, that's kind of where a lot of this started. Um, you know, 2014 was a, was a tough year in America, but also in, in New York for just issues surrounding police violence. And, uh, you know, we had Eric Garner in Staten Island in July. Then in August, there was Mike Brown in Missouri. And then also John Crawford in Dayton, Ohio. And in November, you had a, a, a guy named Akai Gurley in Brooklyn, sim- similar uh, situation. And, uh, and then Tamir Rice in Cleveland. And so uh, th- things were bubbling, things were happening. And uh, December of that same year, 2014, uh, Rafael Ramos and Wijan Liu, um, two officers, were uh, killed, were gunned down and killed, uh, as uh, someone said, I think it was the uh, commissioner at the time, assassinated uh, in their cars by a, really a crazy guy. I mean, I think the guy shot his girlfriend in Baltimore. He came from Baltimore, took the train up. Came here, killed these officers, then went to the train station, killed himself. I think after that, uh, just and I'll let Joe talk a little bit more about it, but because of all the uh, tension and all the um, focus on on police officers and a lot of the negativity surrounding it, he wanted to do something uh, positive. And it started out started out really with the the little bracelets, uh, Blue Lives Matter bracelets. And since then, it's grown. Now, I originally reached out to Joe because I wrote a film um, called uh, Code of Silence, a feature length film. And basically, it looks at all these factions. It looks at the Blue Lives Matter uh, or, or leader organizer. It looks at Black Lives Matter leader organizer. It looks at police officers. It looks at uh, you got a character in there who's an assassin who, who goes out and tries to shoot cops. Um, and the point of the whole thing uh, and something I truly believe in is that, you know, we're regardless of you know all our differences, cultural differences, racial differences, you know, we all bleed red. We're all human beings. And I think if we can focus on that, um, then a lot of uh, healing can occur. Um, the story follows a, a white cop who grew up in Brooklyn who has a, a black son. And his um, 
sort of uh, desire to try to figure out how to, how he died at the hands of police. And in that process, realizing that um, we have a lot more commonalities than, than we, than we think we do. And so when I wrote the script, I gave it to my, my script uh, coach and he, he said, listen, man, this is a great script, great writing, but your portrayal of the police are, is, is not accurate. <laughs> you need to go talk to some police. Your portrayal of Blue Lives Matter doesn't seem accurate. You need to go talk to somebody from Blue Lives Matter. Your portrayal of Black Lives Matter seems off. So it's like, you know, I was not writing from, you know, from, from true facts. And because it's a serious um, topic, I wanted to be as, as factual as possible. So I reached out to Joe. I reached out to a couple other people, including uh, Hawk Newsom, who runs um, Black Lives Matter New York. And um, just to get a better insight, some better insights into what their daily lives are actually like. And particularly with Joe, uh, after talking to him, I realized, you know, he'd be a great guest for the true prescription uh, because he's got a he's got a lot of truth to uh, to teach to people. So um, just a quick premise uh, as uh, for my new listeners, um, but for those that have listened to the show before, you know that the premise of the show is that all successful people um, regardless of whatever industry they're in, have had to deal with and, and go through certain truths. And it's, a, it's sort of accepting those truths that they were ignoring that allowed them to become uh, increasingly successful. So, Joe, uh, let's uh, I'll let you choose either a professional truth or a personal truth. Wh- which one would you like to tackle first? I think either or, because I, I think both of them could actually mix mix and match one another, to be quite honest with you. OK. Um, you know, growing up with your uh beliefs or like we were spoken about your biases yeah um it does carry over into your work yeah and uh but then you become a police officer one day and uh, i followed in the footsteps of my dad my dad did 15 and a half years he worked in uh manhattan 17th precinct and uh and i always wanted to be like my father yeah um you always look up to him and i think a lot of a lot of boys growing up mom and dad especially dad says i I want you to be better than me yeah I, i i want a better life for you sure and I don't think I realized till I got older that it wasn't about having a better life. It was about being just as good as my dad. Mm. And uh, I wanted to be the man he was. Got it. And yeah. uh, always following the footsteps. Growing up in Staten Island, it's very different. It's very different than the other four boroughs. Growing up, I went to high school in New York, and uh, I didn't know anyone. I came from a, a Catholic family. And I went to uh, Catholic elementary school at St. Charles. And I was probably one of the only people at the time because my parents didn't make a lot of money. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. She used to cut hair, but then when she had me and my brother and sister, she took care of us. Sure. I went to nursing. And I went to college of Staten Island for a few years. And uh, for anyone that doesn't know, it's a very, you know yourself, it's a very rigorous course. And I was passing everything like I had to. And then uh, about two and a half years in, I had the medical dosage and I was getting very, uh, I was getting bad anxiety and bad migraines because it's a lot. And I did very well in my, my educational studies. And I said, Dad, I said, I, need, I want to be a police officer. And at that time, my cousins were doing it. And when I got out of the academy, I was assigned to the 70th precinct in East Flatbush, and that has history. That's the Admiral Weimer precinct. And back in the day, anybody, I don't care if you're a civilian or a police officer, you said that would never happen. That's a BS story. And it wasn't. That gentleman should have never, ever, ever had to deal with something like that. That was a disgrace to humanity, to the police department. To law enforcement, you don't do that. You don't treat somebody like that. And it's crazy because in 2006, years later, the community still had a certain feeling towards the police. And at that time, you might not understand why. Yeah. But looking back, you do get wiser. And you see, you have every right to. You have a right to uh, not trust certain people. Because like I said, you'd never think that somebody would be capable of that. And it was just a disgrace. And uh, 
it gave you another reason. Some people would even say, you know, it predates that particular incident, you know, just sort of in the country, there's, there's always been, you know, sort of an undertone of, sure. um, I don't want to say tensions between police and community, um, before that, but yes, you're, you're correct. Yeah. I remember I was small. I remember that happening and, and thinking, Whoa, that's, 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 you know, you, it's almost like a, a, a you know, as, as, a, as a child, when you're growing up, you, you're kind of sheltered from things, but when you read about these kind of things, it kind of wakes you up like, Oh, these, these things, these things happen sometimes, uh-huh. you know? And, uh, Dealing with the community in that sense, and uh, at the time, if anybody knows East Flatbush, it's predominant. It's actually the 70th precinct one's the most diverse precincts in Manhattan. You have every single person from every nationality in Brooklyn, especially yeah. in the 70th precinct. Yeah. You have Jewish, Italian, um, African American, Haitian, uh, Spanish, everything. Yeah, Caribbean. Yeah, you know, and and yeah. and here I am on uh, Ocean Avenue. And St. Paul's Court, and I'm like, what mm. am I doing here? <laughs> and just like they say in the academy. The people know when you're a rookie. They know when you're shining gun belts and they test you. Uh-huh. And uh, you learn a lot. And and I was very um, fortunate because at that time, in 2005, November 28th, Detective Dylan Stewart was shot and killed in the 70th Precinct on uh, East 21 Street and Church Avenue, actually right in front of the castle, 141 East 21. And Dylan was a, a, a black officer and he, he was in the mall car that night and he uh, saw a gentleman go through a red light and he goes to stop him, pull alongside wasn't going to issue him a summons. Didn't know a couple of days prior, he, that same gentleman shot at another officer in another command. And this uh, gentleman opened fire through his car, hits Dylan underneath uh, the armpit. And uh, Dylan gave chase. And uh, Dylan passed away. And he left behind two young daughters and a young wife. And that's when the vests for the NYPD actually started changing because now they had the Velcro that actually went over and it actually protected because the, the, the vest Dylan had at the time, it didn't, and it went right through. So that actually started getting better better equipment for the police department. Coming from the inside, and that's, that's what it is. I, I don't think people verbalize you know, how it is on the inside. They just see an exterior of a job. Yeah. And a lot of officers, they'll, they'll either complain or want change, but no one knows how to actually be the change. Sure. And, uh, you know... To see the change, you got to be the change. And if you're not going to be part of it, and all you're going to do is complain, there's nothing that's ever going to happen. Just like in the media today, no matter if it's CNN or Fox, people always talk, talk, talk about what's being done. And uh, like you said, 2014, it, it was difficult. It was very difficult as a police officer because you have Baltimore, St. Louis, and then boom, New York City, my hometown with Eric Audner. And no matter what ever and, happens. And your borough, your home yep, borough. No matter what ever happens a life lost is a tragedy and nobody should ever have to deal with that no matter if you want to say they're a good guy a bad guy that's terrible because they have family and the family's going to miss them and uh, right after just like you said the boiling point you have you have some individual that's a little loose coming from another state state, kills his girlfriend leaves takes a trip up on his own he puts it on facebook Uh, i think something along the lines of you know a pig's gonna fly today some along the lines that i put up i remember and uh when Jen and Raphael were sitting in their car. And uh, that day, they weren't even supposed to be partners. They weren't steady partners. Someone called out of work. And that's how they got linked up that day. And they went to something called uh, CRV. It was a critical response vehicle. And they actually left their command. They were sitting there on the corner. And if you look back, this gentleman just goes up, canvases the vehicle, and just unloads into them. Uh, when Jen had just gotten married. No kids, very young. Raphael had uh, two young boys and a wife at home. And I've spoken to Maritza and... It was right before Christmas, and not too long before, Raphael called up and said, "Babe, you know, when I get out of work, we're gonna go go Christmas shopping." And people don't know don't know those ins and outs. And uh, you know, I, I went to Raphael Ramos's uh, wake and funeral 
and we saw police officers from all over the United States and community members coming out there to say, this is enough. This is enough on both sides. Yeah. And uh, we came up with the idea for wristbands. And it was just to donate to Raphael's wife and Wenjin's wife and just to show support. And if you don't know, the wristbands are, are black and blue. And that's actually the symbol of the blue line of an officer down. And just said blue lives matter. Not that other lives don't matter, but officers' lives and their families will never be forgotten. They, they, they do matter. And uh, we, we had 100, and we put it on social media. We never thought we weren't salesmen. Yeah. Within five minutes, it was sold out. There were people from all over New York calling the precinct. But we had supervisors calling up and be like, what is this? What's going on? <laughs> and uh, fast forward to now, 2018, and we're coming close to raising a million dollars from three cops from Manhattan. Just, just had good intentions. And uh, we spoke earlier. I've been a part of so many things that I never thought I'd be a part of. And I think when, when you have good intentions, uh, the big guy upstairs tries to throw a bone and reward you and let you know you're on the right path, uh, being able to meet. And whether your political views, it doesn't matter. I respect him to the fullest because he was a president meeting President Obama, being on Nightlight News. There comes a point now that I'm, I'm pretty much, I'm not going to say full-time, but a pretty often commentator on, on Fox and Friends and Fox First. And I never thought this. I'm the little guy from Staten Island. This isn't supposed to happen. And... Uh, I think you realize over time when you open up your mind and you stop being so closed-minded and, and stop assuming. And that was the one thing I appreciate as a police officer is just listening. Even if you're just on a train, just listen to what the people are saying, what they're thinking, what they're feeling. That's what's so great about the United States and New York is it's backgrounds from all over. It's You get to see things that maybe other people can't experience. You get to appreciate it. And you know, my goal one day is I never thought about this, but the platform I was giving is to be in politics when I retire. And I appreciate the assemblymen and councilmen, but no offense to them, and God bless them. I'm not too worried about the potholes in the streets or stop signs of where we're going to put a, a red light. Um, I told you this when we had the phone interview. I don't think there's anything more political than being handed a, a gun and a shield and having the responsibility of taking a life or saving a life in a matter of seconds. And if you could do that ethically and morally and, and with the right intentions in mind your whole career for 20 years... I think you're ahead of the game. Yeah. And I think if you have an open mind and you're willing to have people and meet people along the way from all over and get different views, yeah. I think you can make a big change in this world. I think that's what we need. So if I can if I can condense, that was a, a nice chunk. It was a nice chunk <laughs> of truth. <laughs> if I could condense all that down, um, one phrase that you mentioned um, is was uh, see the change and be the change. It sounds like that's kind of the, the, the condensation of the truth that you realize, you know, seeing these things happen to police officers, seeing them happen in community, um, wanting to do something about it, not really knowing what to do. And then finally just, just, you know, you, it started, started serendipitously, but then it, now, like you said, you, you guys are, um, close to almost raising a million dollars. You're doing a lot of things in, the, in, in, you know, for the families. So that's, you know, that's great. You know, one of the things that, um, um, we talked about this before we started recording, that Obama said during that uh, that hour long um, town hall was, you know, we have inherent biases, and I think on both sides, if people can recognize those before they go into a situation, or yeah, I mean, way before you go into a situation, then we probably end up in a much better place as we go forward. Because you know, we, we're we're you know we're all on this planet together, basically. You know, we all have to live here, and um, why not live a sort of a peaceful existence with each other rather than just you know fighting, arguing. 
um, killing. And usually the argument, the fights about some misunderstanding or some miscommunication. Um, I, I listened to an interview you did with uh, Joe Piscopo. Um, it was a radio interview with one of the the um, the wives of one of the fallen officers, and you said that you know police officers are held to a higher standard when they do something wrong, right? Um, do you think that's fair? Absolutely. You, you think it is I fair? do? Okay. You're given a lot more responsibility than the average person, and uh, that uniform symbolizes a lot. Like I talked about, in in the matter of a second, things can change, and you're there. See, see. It's, it's hard reading some of these tabloids and newspapers because they think police officers just show up out of nowhere and start picking on people. But what they don't realize and what isn't released is, I'm going to say nine out of ten times, there's a phone call that was made by somebody in that community that needed help or thought they needed help. And that's when an officer responds. And uh, they're there, and, and I've said this in several interviews, and I remember saying it in my ABC Nightline interview, is I've never met a police officer that strapped up there Fest, put on their gun belt and said, I want to go out there and kill a certain type of person today. That person, if he or she is out there, should have never been a police officer to begin with. But never in my almost 13 years have I ever, ever, ever heard of somebody wearing a uniform wanting to do that. If anything, officers would rather never have to use their firearm in their career. You know, even if you were justified or had every green light because some guy you know or or woman was acting erratically or killing other people yeah at the end of the day even if you acted within the scope of your authority you still took a life and that's not easy to deal with and i think people forget they think uh officers are just monsters or, or they're robots and i've gone home at night and and i've been in the shower and i've cried before with uh little kids that are unresponsive that we have to set up a rope and row you know ro- root and uh bring them to the hospital um, I've seen people in communities that have been shot and killed, and it's difficult. You know, no matter if you say they're gangbangers or great kids or no matter what, that's a life in front of you, no matter what side you're on. Yeah. And it's difficult. I've been to police funerals, and those are hard. Yeah. I've met several families from all over the United States that have lost loved ones, left behind kids. It's never easy. You know, and, and I think if, if we start having an open mind, and it all starts with conversation. Instead right. of just screaming and yelling and, <laughs> you know, it's... Even even they say in, in some of these organizations that maybe get a bad rap, you know, I think every organization that's ever started starts with great intentions. Right. The problem is, is when the tabloids and the media gets involved and starts putting a spin on what they want to sell papers for. And sometimes you got bad people with bad intentions that either volunteer or claim they're part of that quote unquote movement or organization that give it a bad name. You know, and I've seen it from both sides, even with Black Lives Matter, I've seen people come out and say, that person has nothing to do with us, <laughs> you know? And I've had other people say, too, just because one person's acting like a jerk doesn't justify or, or represent the whole group. Right. I remember during our phone interview, you talked about there's like Blue Lives Matter, people that call themselves Blue Lives Matter in other states. And uh, Blue Lives Matter NYC is the only actual uh, 403B, you know, yeah, 501C3 uh, registered non-profit registered organization, IRS, yep. But you have these other people saying, I'm Blue Lives Matter, I'm Blue Lives Matter. And if you look, too, there's one of them that just stirs crap. They take the stuff in the media, and even in the cop size, you're giving us a bad name, man. You put it out there, and these people that, that talk nonsense, and they almost like encrypt wording that's going out the community. Stop it. Enough. Yeah. You know, I've had people that come after us, and is this you? No, it's not me. You know, we've had lawsuits come our way. We're like, no, sorry. And we pass it back off and say, handle this, because it's not us. You know, the whole thing is to do positive things and you know listen we're human we make mistakes you know in your life or 
you know, whatever it is, you have some ex-girlfriends that think you're the biggest jerk in the world and other ones that think you're not. But, you know, it's <laughs> just funny. at the end of the day, you know, you really do just try to make a mark. And I'm realizing as I'm getting older, the whole point of each of us being here is to do something positive. And I think when you start realizing that, that you're adding worth to this world instead of just taking up space or, or claiming something or, you know, not going out there. Like I said, so many people in the world, they'll complain and moan and what are you doing? What are you doing to make it better? Well, I want... This, that, the other. Well, you're going to go out there and get it. You're going to go out there and make the difference. And listen, it hasn't been easy. It's a full-time job. And, yeah. you know, I'd love and to you one have, day. And you have a full-time job. Yep. I'd, I'd love to one day have a GoPro and have you come around and see what it's like. And sometimes I don't sleep, you know, but it's a greater purpose. And I've said this before. There's a higher power that's pushing me to do this, that, that's guiding the light, that's putting me on this road. And I don't know what it is right now, but one day it, it'll it'll all make, make sense. Makes sense. Okay. You know, as of, you know, we're in the year is not, is a little, little past half over. As of May, um, and this is statistics from the United States, there have been 26 uh, officers killed in the line of duty. And we're past, I think last year, the total for 2017 was um, 35. So we're already sort of, you know, past that at the little past the halfway mark. Um, and on the other side, there's been 519 people killed by and this is again the U.S. police officers, and that's as of June, right? So you got, you know, sort of twenty six versus five nineteen, um, and again, who knows? Like these are statistics that I'm pulling off the internet. Who knows what these people were killed for? Why they were killed? And particularly, also with the officers, you know, some officers may have fallen off a building or something. It doesn't mean that it was necessarily, you know, gun violence. But clearly, there's, you know, there's a discrepancy. People are dying on both sides. Um, what, you know, from your standpoint, and I know with Blue Lives Matter, your focus is really on the families, but as an officer, you know, you are, you're a sergeant, you know, for 13 years, what do you, what do you think needs to change? Like what, what's your perspective? So going on into that? the numbers and, and I think, uh, that might just be one category because I believe it's much more than that, uh, officer wise. But when you go into number wise, even with the community, all over the United States, there's millions upon millions of interactions daily. So when you break that down, it's actually less than a percent usually that involves, now listen, like we spoke earlier, any life taken, no matter what, is too much. But when you throw in the other factors, you're like, wait a second, you know, that's 1% of possibility. It's it's actually, I don't want to say it's not bad, but it just changes the game a little bit. Um, it puts some perspective on it. Yeah. Now, I, I think, I say this all the time, I think social media is a big problem. It's a lot of positive, but it is a lot of negative, too, because uh, you'll have the same story, but completely different stories if you read into it. <laughs> story CNN, story. Fox, you know, I mean, yes, I go on Fox, you know, but completely different stories. And it's what they want you to hear. It's what's going to go towards that fan base to rile people up. And I, I think a lot of the problem is ignorance. I think a lot of one of the biggest things I always talk about is accountability. In this world, no one ever comes out and says, I was wrong. How do I fix it? Or I'm sorry. It's always pointing a finger at, no, you know, Doc, you're the one that's doing it wrong. Screw yeah. you. No. <laughs> it, that, that's the problem nowadays with people. Another thing is politicians that don't, don't really know all the facts either. They get from a podium and they rile people up. Rile people up. Now, listen, I'm all for protest and, and, and you know, getting your opinion out there. But the problem is when you go out there and, and the news doesn't show this either, when you go out there and storefronts start getting vandalized, things start going, you know, up in flames, storefronts, there's people that are getting beaten up on both sides, you know, just community and community. I'm not even talking about police, just there's violence that you don't see that we see firsthand because we deal with it, that they cover up because they don't want you to hear that part. 
you know, uh, the graffiti and, and the vehicles damaged and vandalized. And there's so much more that goes on. And, and that's nothing happens. Nothing ever gets solved with violence. You know, that's why if we had more people and I always look at it like John Lennon or Martin Luther King Jr. They go out there peacefully and do it. That's what it's all about. You know, but but we got to start working together. If you're not going to work together and listen and want to be a part of both sides in the solution, it's just going to keep on boiling up. If you don't shut off that flame, sooner or later, that, that water's going to boil over. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so this is an interesting question. I have, you know, when I told some some friends of mine and colleagues that I was having you, you know, I was going to be interviewing you. I'm sure you can imagine there was like <laughs> you know, varying degrees of opinion. But one question uh, a friend of mine asked me, which I didn't know the answer to. I said, well, let, let me ask him. I, I, he seems like a pretty open guy. Um, so Black Lives Matter was started, I believe, and I could be wrong, but I believe it was after the shooting of Trayvon Martin, 2012. Do you think, um, and you may have been asked this question before, but do you think if, let's say, after that shooting happened, there was no organization named Black Lives Matter that came about, do you think you would have still named your organization, Blue Lives Matter. You know, just pe- people, people have asked that question before, and, and and the 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 honest answer is, it wasn't retaliation. If you see, we never protest, we never go in the streets. So it's, that's not what this is about. Yeah, yeah, this is all about the families, and you know, it's it's just like, but specifically the name. Like, do you think you would have named it that? It would have been the same you, thing. It would have. You would have no difference. You would have named that. Yeah, because at the end of the day, and, and you know, it's not discriminating. If you really look into it, it's not discriminating against any one race whatsoever because I say this all the time, being a police officer is like being part of the all-star squad for the entire United States. You have people from every background, from every facet of this world that wear that uniform proudly. And uh, there's a reason why they say a sea of blue at funerals because you don't see the color behind that uniform. You see the blue, the blue hats, you know, and the caps. You see the, the blue dress uniforms. You don't see the color underneath it. So that that's what it is. It's It's at the end of the day, officers' lives, blue lives do matter, just like everybody else's. You know, and listen, and you get some ignorant people, well, you signed up for this. You should know that you, you could go out there and get killed. Yeah, but you know what? You take that uniform off, and guess what? That's a human being who celebrates holidays with their families, birthdays, Christmases. You know, and, and I think over time, I think for, for having that hard-ass appearance for all those years with the police departments, that militant, you know, not the community-based, people were so used to just a, a robot-like warrior they didn't they didn't get to see the human side of it and that's what's sure. great about the community police and it's really taken hold it's people get to see wow officers dance and they play sports and you know they talk and they interact they eat you know you never saw an officer eat when you're younger because you're not allowed to you know they're human beings and uh th- that's what it's all about do you believe in community policing i, I remember uh, I d- you like- know what it is I-, I i do but at the same time i think also that it's kind of hurting officers so think about this last night there was an officer that was a. Uh, Killed in uh, Wormoth. Wormoth. There was an officer that was killed last night. There was a gentleman. They they got a call um, for an erratic driver. He goes over there and uh, gives the guy several commands to to stop, you know, comply. Officer draws his gun. Gentleman goes over, beats the officer with a rock, takes his firearm, shoots and kills him, unloads several bolts into him, and then goes and kills an, uh, an innocent woman a little while later. Now... What people don't understand from the law enforcement side is a deadly weapon could be anything. You could pick up a chair or a knife or it doesn't just have to be a typical weapon. I could take a laptop and you can actually, you know, being a doctor, you can blunt drama and, you know, concussions and they could fall and lead to other things. Because officers are so afraid of being on the front page of the paper, 
having people come to their house and threaten to kill them or burn down their house or their family that they're holding back. And I think what the community policing is, they're expecting you too much. And at the end of the day, people call us for help. If there's a woman that was just getting beaten up by her husband or somebody and, you know, threatened he's going to kill her, she's going to call us for a reason. We have to go there. Now, if the guy is coming at you, what do you do? You know what I mean? And, and you factor in everything else. Now, another thing on top of that is officers are expected to wear too many hats. They're expected to be doctors and psychiatrists and therapists and all these different people, teachers, and you're human. It's a lot. And, and officers, like I said earlier, have seconds to make a decision. And like I said, I do agree that it's, we, it's much needed. Yeah. And it needs to be transparent, police departments. But officers cannot be afraid to be police officers when they need to. Yeah, I think fear is a big thing. Um, when you're afraid, you're more likely to make decisions that are not um, well thought out. Now, you know, let me ask you a question on it. So you're a doctor in the medical field. Yeah. If for a year, all in the news, doctors were getting sued and losing their jobs for taking action, and there were just some crazy mishaps that happened where the person passed away, or, you know, maybe by accident there was a little bit too much, you know, uh, anesthesia given and the person passed away or whatever. A basic thing that you might normally do you'd be like holy crap should i do this like you're going to start second guessing yourself because you're afraid now that you're going to be that doctor on the front page of the paper losing your job getting your medical license taken away it's very similar to that as a as a police officer is you're giving certain tools to use you're doing everything in your scope as a doctor to save that life but now you're afraid because the media is telling you how to do your job they've never once went to medical school They've never once seen a, a child or an elderly person come in from a, a serious car crash or whatever. And you have seconds to make a decision. As, you know, even as a doctor, you're, you're there to save lives. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. very similar. It's not the same, but it's yeah. similar. Not just like a little, it's a little similar. way of putting yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, I think one, one, one difference, and I've heard some people talk about this, but, you know, we have malpractice insurance. <laughs> you know, so if, if I do make a mistake or, you know, do something wrong, then, you know, there's, you know, there's some accountability. Um, financial accountability. Um, but you said something interesting, uh, and this, is, this wasn't a question I had, but, um, you know, just in terms of that, this gentleman that would happen last night in terms of discharging his firearm. Um, I know that, you know, there's this whole thing about, you know, you, 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 you aim for center mass, you know, uh, you're trained to, aim, you're trained to aim for center mass. And then some people say, well, you're actually trained to you know, maybe shoot him in the leg or some other area, but, when you get out there, the the veteran cops will tell you, listen, if you want to stay alive, you want to come home, then if you think it's a, an actual threat, then you need to, to aim for center mass. But I think in terms of the training, in terms of the fear, like it, there needs to be uh, some people shouldn't be afraid. Officers should not be afraid. Right. Um, and then also some, you know, some maybe I don't know if you guys get hand to hand training, but you know, there, there's I think a lot of it stems from fear. And that's and that's a problem. Well, the thing is, too, is it's it's very similar when you're at the range shooting at a paper target. Right. When everything is ideal. Yeah. Your heart rate's nice and calm. All right, one, two, three, boom. You know what I mean? But when you're in a situation like that with life or death, your heart rate goes up. The adrenaline kicks in. Your hand isn't as steady. You know, uh, this isn't the movies where you could just aim and shoot a gun at somebody. Right, sideways. Hand. You know, it, it doesn't <laughs> work that way. You <laughs> right. know, I, I wish right. it was. Yeah. You know, and, and that's why... You hear all these stories in the media go for, wow, that officer shot 60 times. And yeah, because, and, and they only hit the guy once, you know what I mean? Because there's a lot of other factors, you know, and, and 
there's never going to be an ideal situation. Every once in a while, you might have that hero officer that somehow got lucky and was able to put that one bullet in that target, stop the guy, the bad guy lived, the cop walked away safe, and the guy got, you know, prosecuted and went to the court. You know, but it's very hard to, to Monday night quarterback something like that because, listen, have I, in my almost 13 years on, have I had my firearm drawn? Absolutely. Have I had to fire it? Never. You know, so I can't speak in behalf of those guys that went out there and did it. You know, you and me, we might have different levels of what we f- think is a threat. You know, we might, something that I might go towards, you might be like, Joe, just, whoa, just calm down, <laughs> talk to this guy, and vice versa. Right. You know sure, what I mean? Sure, maybe you thought, sure. well, maybe you put your gun away and, and instead, you know, hand to hand or just talk him. Yeah. See, that's the thing too. When you're a young, young cop and we use the term piss and vinegar, you, you have, you know, and you're all <laughs> excited. It's very different. And and you, you hear the stories of those old timers, you're like, oh, this guy's salty and whatever. But you learn to use your mouth, and that's the biggest tool over time. Just to be able to talk to somebody, and you calm things down. Because at the end of the day, we have as much time as we need. And yeah, there's going to be tragedies that happen, even if you don't use a firearm. You've seen the stories with the um, the tasers. Yeah. You know, right. and people yes, falling off a roof and hurting their heads. Or, you know, or someone could still have a heart attack from that and still pass. You know, but... Greatest tool that we have in this world, officer or not, is, is your tone and the way you speak to somebody. And is it going to work 100% of the time? No, it's not. But you know what? You start there. And you're patient. You know what? Maybe after five minutes, you do it for 15 minutes or a half hour. Maybe an hour later, the guy says, you know what? You're right. I'm ready to go. Just like when they talk somebody off from jumping off a bridge. You don't just go over there and get over here, you jerk. You know, you, you talk to them. Yeah. You gain someone's trust. And you you take that human side, and and that's what that's what's really important. It's hard. I mean, you know, for me, even you know, working in the emergency department, sometimes I even see um, police brings bring suspects in for treatment, and um, some of it is psych, but some of it is they're just being outright belligerent. You know, they're talking, they're talking. Uh, I'll, I'll curse. I normally don't curse, but they're talking shit. Mm-hmm. Um, they're egging the cops on. They're they're you know in my presence. You sure. know, loud. And you probably had and guys that were belligerent to you before, and you're like, oh, I'm trying to help you, man. Absolutely, like, Yo, you need to chill. You absolutely. came here because you need my help. Absolutely, you know? exactly. Yeah. Like this is my show. I'm trying to help you. <laughs> you're trying to take over. Like, get out of here. <laughs> you know, it's true. So it it it's definitely um it's definitely. I mean, yeah. I mean, I've been urinated at. I've been spat on. I've been cursed at. Um, and you know. And I'm not in a life or death situation, so it's tough. And um, I don't know all the answers, um, but I do know that conversation is a good place to start. Um, I'm going to, before before I close out, I'm just going to say, I plan on interviewing um, Hawk Newsom at some point. That's great. Um, if, he, if, he, if he agrees, um, would you agree maybe to sit down and have the same, the same location and talk about some of these issues. Listen, I'd love that. And I, I'd even love, and I've talked about this before, working together to do something positive. See, talking's where it starts. You just said it. But what can we do working together that can positively affect different people in different communities and put that positive spin on it? Yeah. I would love to. Okay. You know, this isn't just right. Joan Paratrice founder of Blue Lives Matter NYC. This is Joan Paratrice who's trying to make a difference in this world. So if there's a way that I can contribute, if, if you know, the big guy upstairs thinks that I'm worthy of it and, you know, other people want to work together, you know, throw the titles out of the way. How do we change this world for the better? How, how do we make something good happen? Yeah. I'm yeah. always, full, I'm all for it, man. Okay. All for it. Excellent. So Joe, tell the people how they can reach you, um, how they can find out more information about Blue Lives Matter. Well, what you can do is go to the website, bluelivesmatternyc.org. You can see the interviews that uh, our founders do. I, I end up, you know, doing a lot of them. You could see... Uh, 
all the different items we have, whether it's shirts or hoodies or, you know, just little things to support. You can go to our Facebook page, follow us. We got people, all 50 states following us at Blue Lives Matter, NYC. It's got the hyphen with the angel wings. You can see everything we're doing. The main thing I wanted from day one was to be transparent, show everybody, number one, what we're doing, the goals we have, and where the money goes. And then that's why being a 501c3 is so important because here you go, you give to the accountant, you claim the taxes at the end of the year. You know, I'm not driving around a Lamborghini. I wish I was, but, you know, it's all about the families. And, uh, you know, we start from here, but we've helped several families from all over the United States. It was actually a, an officer, Joel Coward, who uh, grew up, in East New York, and he ended up becoming uh, an officer in Georgia. Okay. And uh, one of his buddies, uh, Jason Reynolds, narcotics uh, detective friend of mine, told me that Joel was suffering from summer, stomach cancer. Single father, raised his son, and went out to Georgia, surprised him and his family. And after his last chemo session before his stomach surgery, the doctor told him that he should go away on a trip. But we went out there, and uh, we paid for him to go to Jamaica to see his family. And that, that's the things we do. And it's not just New York. And, uh, you know, people talk about chapters and all that stuff. And that's great, but it's a lot of headaches. And I think it's more special when you go to a different place and they say, well, Joe came from all the way from New York to do this. And uh, that's where it started. It started here with, you know, a Spanish officer, an Asian officer. And, uh, you know, we're just going to grow on it. So that's just a couple things that we do. Okay. Excellent. Well, Joe, thank you so much. Thank you I so much for you having me. Coming up to Harlem to, to talk to me. Thank you. I really appreciate and, um, it. And I'll close as I always do truth will set you free if you let it. <laughs>